You've probably heard me talk about my dog, Jackson. He's my baby boy. And as he's gotten older, he's gotten really finicky about eating. He used to get so excited about food, he'd literally spin. Well, not anymore. In fact, I often have to spoon feed him to get him to eat. Well, no more. Not since we started feeding him fresh food made with whole ingredients, backed by veterinary science. It's Nom Nom. Now, I actually tried making food for him myself. I'd cook up big batches of chicken or beef with vegetables and rice or potatoes. But without knowing what I was doing, he wasn't getting the vitamins and minerals he needed and certainly not in the correct balance. That's all changed now with Nom Nom. Go to trynom.com, T-R-Y-N-O-M.com slash Nicole. They'll ask you some questions about your pup and tailor a specific amount of individually packaged Nom Nom meals and send them to you. By using my special URL, trynom.com slash Nicole, you'll get 50% off of your first order, plus free shipping, and it's a great way to help support this show too. Again, that's trynom.com slash Nicole. plus Nom Nom comes with a money-back guarantee. If your dog's tail isn't wagging within 30 days, Nom Nom will refund your first order. No fillers, no nonsense, just Nom Nom. Well, I'm moving on out, out of Florida, headed for Arizona, where we'll stay. Moving on out, out of Florida, to a place where it's okay to say gay. AZ didn't vote for the fascists, like Florida certainly did. I know things there won't be perfect. I'm really going to miss my kid. While we're driving cross country, there still are shows to be done. So I'm pulling interviews you may not have heard, and I hope you listen to everyone while we're moving on out. Out of Florida to Arizona where it's hot as hell. I'll take the sauna over the steam bath. To escape that Ron DeSantis fascist smell. Happy Friday. I'm Nicole Sandler, probably somewhere on a long stretch of highway in the middle of Texas on our way to Arizona. I think it's purgatory. Anyway, today's show takes from two decades, neither one the one we're in now. At this time in 1995, an artist named Alanis Morissette was climbing the charts. Her album, Jagged Little Pill, would hit number one just a week or two later. I was an early cheerleader for the album. And because of that, as her megastar was rising, she came into the radio station I was working at at the time for an interview with me. That was 28 years ago this week. We'll revisit that interview in the second half of the show. But we'll begin today with an interview from 2010 about psychedelics to treat mental health issues. You know that I recently underwent a series of ketamine therapy treatments for depression. It might seem like I was jumping on the new trend bandwagon, but this exciting breakthrough in treating mental health with psychedelics is an idea I've been following since first reading about the work being done with returning veterans suffering from PTSD. It was 13 years ago. So we go back to June 2nd of 2010. No apologies, no excuses. Nicole Sandler, radio or not. What will it take? After the MDMA, um, I fought it once and it never happened again. Who will it affect? It has allowed me to open up and have communication with my family that I have never been able to have before. How will it feel? By taking the MDMA, it's like my mind allowed me to grapple with and remember the pieces that I couldn't or wouldn't allow myself to remember. MAPS is the leading nonprofit organization working to legitimize the therapeutic applications of MDMA, LSD, psilocybin, and medical marijuana. The well-known effects of these medicines are the key to their benefit. MDMA is known for allowing people to open up to their feelings. And when combined with psychotherapy, this can help people to overcome debilitating post-traumatic stress disorder. Marijuana is known for numerous benefits, such as pain and stress relief. 
LSD and psilocybin are known for allowing people to have mystical experiences, which can lessen anxiety associated with life-threatening illnesses. MAPS is working tirelessly within the parameters of real scientific research to prove to the Food and Drug Administration that these medicines should become available by prescription. We are counting on the support of thousands of people like you in order to achieve our goals. Please, become a member and donate now. Why not today? Log on to www.maps.org forward slash donate. When used with the help of a trained therapist, these medicines can help. MAPS. Putting the MD and MDMA. I love that tagline. Maps putting the MD in MDMA. And MDMA, by the way, is ecstasy, a drug which I've never tried. Um, I guess I'm just I'm beyond that uh, generation. I guess. Anyway, we're calling Randy Hankin, who's the director of communications and marketing for Maps, and hopefully he will be there in his office um, because we did have this. Hey, Randy, it's Nicole Sandler calling from Radio or Not. Hi, Nicole. Thanks for giving me a call. Sure. Well, thank you for agreeing to speak with us tonight. I just played uh, for the listeners the introductory video that you have up on the maps.org website, which is very compelling. Now, to be honest with you, I never heard of MAPS, which, by the way, stands for the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, or the use of psychedelics for treatment of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder or anxiety and some of the other things you're doing until I read this piece in Playboy a couple of months ago. Um, I would guess that this the, this article um, gave you guys a lot of exposure, huh? Uh, that article and many other articles that have come out about us recently, we had a uh, major conference, the biggest conference on psychedelics in the United States in over 40 years um, in San Jose, California in April. And we brought researchers from around the world. Uh, about 90 different pre- presenters came, and about 1,200 people came in attendance. And we got so much wonderful positive press from that conference. We were in the New York Times, CNN, USA Today, Scientific American, Nature Magazine, and the list goes on. So um, we are thrilled that we're at a time in history where the media is no longer um, afraid to talk about us, they no longer feel it's necessary to speak about us negatively, and they're open to what we have to say, and they're uh, sharing our information in a positive light. Well, it's great, and I'm glad. You know, it's it's such a silly, the drug laws in this country are so crazy. When, when it's obvious that, and let's just talk marijuana for a moment here, that marijuana has shown such great medical promise, and a lot of people are... Um, you know, dealing with the effects of chemotherapy better or, or pain, you know, when nothing else will help. And yet there are those who want to deny those patients the legitimate medical use of it um, just because it was arbitrarily made illegal some years ago. Um, now, but but psychedelics are, are sort of a different... Well, before we go on to psychedelics, okay. if, you, if you would, Nicole, let's talk about marijuana okay. for a moment. Um, it really is uh, insane how entrenched these forces are against marijuana and how much money they're willing to put against um, letting people choose to use that as a medicine or recreationally. And one of the things that MAPS has been involved in for the past 10 years is trying to... Uh, make it so the more marijuana research can happen. And there's a unique thing that happens with marijuana. Um, marijuana, if you want to do research that you can take to the FDA and show that it may have a potential as a medicine, you have to get your marijuana from one supplier. And that supplier is at the University of Mississippi, and it's managed by the National Institute on Drug Abuse. And the National Institute on Drug Abuse basically has a, a mission to look at drugs of abuse. They're looking at drugs in a negative light. They're not interested in looking at drugs uh, for potential benefits. So in order to get their marijuana, you have to submit a protocol to them that they're going to approve. And if you say, I want to uh, look at the benefits of marijuana, they're less likely to approve your protocol, and therefore they won't give you any marijuana. And what's unique about this is there's no other Schedule One drug that has a monopoly on the supply of that drug. If you want to do research with cocaine or LSD or MDMA or heroin or any other Schedule One drug, you can go to multiple suppliers who have Schedule One licenses 
to get that drug. So of all the controlled substances, it's the only one that they made it extra difficult to do the research on. So starting in 19, oh, I'm sorry, in 2001, after several of our protocols got denied by their protocol review process uh, at NIDA and the um, Health and Human Services Division, we sued NIDA, uh, the DEA and we said that we would like to uh, have our own marijuana production facility and we have a professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, uh, Dr. Lyle Craker, who said that I would like to go to the marijuana at the university here and the university approved it and we tried, we applied for an application, they denied the application, we sued them in the DEA's court where they denied the application at. The DEA's administrative law judge, after years of hearings, wrote a 90-page review saying that it would be in the public interest to break the supply of monop- the monopoly on the supply of marijuana from the federal government and open up uh, marijuana production facilities so other people can do research with marijuana. And that happened in 2007. And we sat and waited for them to uh, adhere to their judges' approval for two years. And at the end of the Bush era, the DEA overturned their own judges' ruling and and denied us the opportunity to do that. And we've been in appeal now for two years since they did that, waiting to see if we can get them to go back with their original ruling. We were hoping that the Obama administration was going to uh, put in appoint new leadership to the DEA. Um, because the current acting DEA administrator is Michelle Leonhardt, mm-hmm. and she's the one that overturned uh, the, her administrative judge's ruling. It turns out that Obama is just appointing Michelle Leonhardt to take place there, so um, we're not as hopeful as we were a year and a half ago. Uh, eventually, Michelle will have to go uh, before Congress to have a confirmation hearing, and at that time, we're hoping that the senators that we are in contact with will grill her on this, and she may change her mind, but we're not hopeful. She has been a uh, an avid opponent of medical marijuana. She has overseen um, DEA raids of medical marijuana facilities in states where medical marijuana is legal. She's overseen uh, people in wheelchairs having guns put at their head, uh, DEA agents killing the family dog, wow. and um, the very scary uh, events that she, the way she acts. And um, we're not too hopeful, but we are. We will go to appeal if we can't get this changed. Right. And now, we, you, you, go ahead. So, so this was the uh, the Obama administration who was supposed to um, be more, at least, uh, uh, friendly might not be the right word, but more. Um, um, more forgiving uh, to to you know the medical marijuana to the to the um, uh, dispensaries and things and and they brought this woman in to the EPA who has a horrible track record when it right. comes to this yeah the, the, right, the DEA um, Obama you know he has been uh, trying to take be be good to his campaign promises we've seen it with health care we've seen it with Wall Street reform we see him now pushing it with um, the don't ask don't tell. And he did have his uh, Attorney General Eric Holder come out and, and make a statement that they weren't going to uh, send DEA agents to prosecute, that, that uh, prosecuting medical marijuana users in marijuana, medical marijuana states was the lowest priority. But even after that came out, people have still been raided and arrested and prosecuted. So um, we don't think that he's holding true to his, his promise at this point. Right. No, nor do I. All right. Well, let, let's move on to, um, uh, to to more of what MAPS is about. We're speaking with Randy Henkin, who's the Director of Communications and Marketing for MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Their website is maps.org. All right. So, again, I, I read the piece in Playboy, and I was immediately intrigued because it, it first it t- tells about a, a woman who is um, dealing with a terminal illness. She is, you know, she is dying and she had anxiety over it. Obviously, I would think anybody not knowing what they're in store for is going to be anxious about it. And the protocol that she was put on was starting with, I guess it was MDMA, which is commonly known as ecstasy. And then it led up to LSD. And and now um, from from what I'm reading is, that you're actually using these same kind of psychedelic drugs to treat post-traumatic stress in returning war veterans, which which I find fascinating. Can can you tell me a little bit about how that works? Right. Well, we are at a time now where there are more psychedelic research projects going on than there has been since 1972 when they uh, shut down psychedelic research worldwide. Um, 
And MAPS has a, a few different studies, and then we have sister organizations that are doing other studies. Our biggest study we'll talk about first is using MDMA, the main ingredient in the street drug known as ecstasy, to treat post-traumatic stress disorder. And uh, you may have heard, or your listeners may have heard, that uh, ecstasy is a love drug. It's a peace drug. Right. And uh, for those who have never used this drug, um, my short explanation of it is that people will feel compassion when they're on it. They feel empathy. Can we get and some to give to the Republicans? I'm sorry, sorry. again. <laughs> Can we give it to the Republicans? Can Maybe, we get some you know, to give to the Republicans? It's a fascinating uh, way to try to get people to be more empathetic. Yes. Um, and, and that's the idea, is that people who have PTSD, they had some trauma, and, and that trauma puts them in a cycle as a, a, a a, a cycle where they can't face the trauma and they become nervous, they become anxious, maybe they can't sleep, they can't communicate well with their loved ones, uh, they're hypervigilant, they're hypersensitive, um, they may not be able to hold jobs anymore. All kinds of terrible things can happen with PTSD. They you know, tear bad dreams, etc. Um, and in our, so we had a, one study that we did in South Carolina. We had 21 subjects in the study. These were 19 women, two men. Most of them were victims of sexual assault or mm-hmm. rape or sexual abuse. Uh-huh. And they were considered treatment-resistant. They'd had PTSD on average of 19 years. They've tried talk therapy and drug therapy without success. They come into our therapy session. They meet with our therapist. We use a, a co-therapist model, one male, one female. We believe um, you know, psychedelic, uh, elders in psychedelic psychotherapy uh, teach this method as a way to, um, to balance the energy in the room uh, by having a male and a female there. The, um, so they'll meet, they'll get comfortable with each other, and then they'll come in and they'll have an MDMA session, and that will last all day. They'll be there from 10 in the morning, and they stay the night. And while they're on the MDMA, they are encouraged to discuss the issue that caused the trauma. And what we saw in our initial pilot study is our results blew the water out of anything else that's on the market. There's two drugs that are on the market right now for PTSD. It's Paxil and Zoloft. And our results are much more significant or much more powerful than those results. Now that at the pilot study, we have to replicate that um, in other studies now. We have a study in Switzerland that just completed. We also had great results. They weren't as good, but they were still significant, and they were still better than Zoloft and Paxil. And uh, we're starting up a study in Canada, uh, Spain, Israel, and Jordan. And we're also going to do another study in South Carolina, and that's the study that you were alluding to a second ago, mm-hmm. which would be a study just of veterans in war, uh, of veterans uh, with PTSD from war. Um, now, one of the things that the FDA and the European Medicines Agency has requested of us is that different victims of PTSD will respond to different treatments differently. So we were tr- this next study with just the veterans of war is to see if the treatment is as good for veterans of war as it is for victims of sexual assault. So that's what we're doing. And I just I want to just spit this out real quick. Um, our model of trying to make MDMA a legal prescription medicine for use in psychedelic psychotherapy is a model where people will come to one of our therapy clinics take MDMA under the care of a medical professional, and they'll only do that a few times in a lifetime. We do not envision or advocate the notion that uh, doctors are going to be able to write somebody a prescription for MDMA and they'll go and get a bottle of 100 of these things and take them once a day, uh, you know, every day for the rest of their life. Um, That's not what we see. We see people using these things a few times in a lifetime. Um, MDMA and other psychedelics are powerful tools and they're able to catalyze change in a few short sessions versus drugs that are on the market that typically uh, will treat the symptoms but won't go after the actual cause. Right. So this it would be used in conjunction with a, with therapy sessions where you're on the MDMA or or the LSD depending uh, what what the therapist feels is needed. And in that you you come to some sort of epiphany. You 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 work through whatever. The, the block is in there? I'm not, how, do, how does it work? That, that's exactly right, Nicole. Um, the, the, the notion is that many people will, when they take one of these psychedelics, will have an epiphany, will be able to face an issue that they couldn't face uh, in a normal state of, of being. So in one of these non-ordinary states of consciousness, 
they are now able to come to terms with something and then be able to reflect on that in the days after and move forward in their life. Um, Laura Huxley, uh, the, the wife of Aldous, Aldous Huxley, mm-hmm. once said that uh, one psychedelic experience can equal to years of therapy. And, uh, and we find that true from anecdotal reports, and we're seeing that true in our studies. So beyond our MDMA studies that I just um, briefly talked about, we also do have an LSD study going in Switzerland where we're administering LSD uh, as part of psychotherapy to aid people who are dying um, from advanced stage cancer and other uh, terminal illnesses. And it's the same. Um, for those who have never taken LSD or perhaps uh, psychedelic mushrooms, which is what our sister organization, the Hector Research Institute, is doing at Johns Hopkins University, um, these medicines uh, can cause epiphanies. They give people mystical-type experiences. They can often see, uh, for lack of um, another way to describe it, they can have a God experience. And if you're dying and you have a God experience, you can feel much better about leaving the body. And that, that's the theory that we're going on, and that's what we're testing in our LSD study. Oh, very interesting. Again, we're speaking with Randy Henkin, who's the Director of Communications and Marketing for MAPS. MAPS.org uh, is, is the website. MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Um, I remember hearing um, that... Uh, you know, some people would, can take acid and freak out. How would that, um, you know, how does that help to treat anxiety? A lot of people would get anxious on, on a psychedelic. They would call it a bad trip. Um, right. Is there danger well, well, of that? This is true. I mean, some people will take a psychedelic and have a difficult experience. Um, you know, we try not to use the term a bad trip um, because the media has, has done something with a that term that we just don't agree with. Right. Um, a difficult experience is not necessarily a bad experience. Uh-huh. Uh, having to face one's demons mm. is not necessarily a bad experience. Having to, to go through a bardo-type experience, which is what can happen. A lot of people will take on a heavy, amphiogenic dose of psychedelics. They will have an experience very similar to what you may read about in the Tibetan Book of the Dead or, um, or another mystical you know, book from... Um, you know, it's been passed down from eons. What these different uh, shamans or prophets have experienced and talked about is what can be found through a psychedelic experience. Um, so it's very important to take a psychedelic in the proper set and setting. Right, with, with someone who could talk you through it and help you, mm-hmm. re, you know, work through whatever it is you're experiencing. You know, and one of the things that we envision, I mean, we know that we have a, a long road in front of us. We we are we're thinking it's going to take us another eight to ten years to make MDMA a prescription medicine. Okay, that's it's going to cost us be... about ten million dollars, and everything we do is based on donations. So if anybody's interested in what they do, they can come to maps.org and make a donation and help us do our research. Um, and then even after we uh, you know make MDMA a prescription medicine, there's still more work to do for the other psychedelics, and we realize that it's going to be uh, another generation or two before these things are truly accepted in the mainstream. But what I want to see, uh, where I come from, there's going to be 400,000 new users of LSD this year. And the typical new LSD user is a male 18 to 22 in college. Many of these people are taking it for the first time in a bad situation. I remember being in high school uh, the first, you know, the first time that I was using psychedelics, and I remember uh, f- friends I knew taking people for their first trip into a graveyard, Ooh. and the people had a terrible experience. Oh, of course. Of course. Imagine that you're going to be in a graveyard, you're going to see dead people. What, right. a, what a terrible place to be. So it's so important to our research, to our modality, that we create a safe space. And that's something that anybody can do, so they can create a safe space to, to have a psychedelic experience. So... You know, one thing I would like to see is I don't want to see high school kids taking psychedelics behind their parents' backs mm-hmm. out in graveyards. I want people to be educated, to be able to take them guided in a safe setting so they don't have, if they do have anxiety, there's somebody there to protect them. If they do face a, a demon, they're there in a safe place to handle it as opposed to being um, willy-nilly out on their own 
in the streets. Absolutely. Um, now, is the is 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 the VA at all interested in in the findings on 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 PTSD and how how psychedelics are working? Because we are we have an inordinate number of veterans returning home with with severe post traumatic stress. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and that's one thing we're really excited to be able to work with veterans. I wish I could tell you that the VA has been warm to us. Mm. Uh, in general, they've been pretty cold to us. Uh, we have recently, just recently, had a very positive talk with somebody at the VA, um, and it makes us believe that uh, there may be an open door to us in the near future, but um, that's not concrete at this time, and I don't want to... Uh, say too much about it. Oh, what a shame. All right. Um, one quick question from the chat room. Somebody asked if if uh, you take MDMA, M- MDMA, can you tap into that sort of ecstatic experience later on? Um, ab- absolutely. And that is, um, we know that anecdotally, we know that from our own therapy studies now that we've done that. Um, these are people who haven't experienced love in 20 years, they forgot what it feels like to feel love. And now they get a glimpse of it again. And maybe it's a short glimpse while they're under the influence of this drug. But the next week, they can remember that glimpse and they can start to find it on their own. Um, I see, I, I've read a lot about uh, the modern American Buddhist. Mm-hmm. A lot of them started with psychedelics, perhaps when they were 18 to 22. And they got a glimpse of a spiritual practice. And now they're on in their life, and they don't use psychedelics for spirituality anymore. But that was the glimpse that they got first, and now they adhere more to maybe a meditative practice or a yoga practice. Oh, interesting. To, to find those things. Yeah, you know, I grew up, I, I went to high school in, in the 70s. I, I graduated in 77, and I lived in South Florida, where during the 70s, a lot of stuff came in. And I did my share of experimenting. We smoked all kinds of pot, and, you know, and, and there were so many cow pastures out here that we would go out and pick the mushrooms. Um, but I think, I, I mean, I grew up and, and got past all that before ecstasy came to the fore. Um, and it, but everything I hear about it, though, I, w- I would love to try it. But there's no way to do it legally, is there? Unless yeah, you're in a study. There's just there's not a, a legal place in the world to do ecstasy at this time unless you're in one of our studies. I, Nicole, I would love to get you into a study, but there's two things. One, I hope that you're not suffering as much as the people in our study suffer. I hope not, and, too. And two, it's just um, there's a limited space for them at this time. Okay. Um, well, people yeah. can can find out more about uh, what you do, and and if when you do have studies, if you know, I would love to see some uh, veterans who are suffering get into it. Um, I, again, the website is maps.org, M-A-P-S dot org, and uh, you're based out in California, and uh, and you are you do operate uh, with donations. So if anybody wants to help finance some of these studies, uh, you can use the the donations too, right? Yeah, absolutely. Everything we do is funded by our donors. There's about 1,800 members of MAPS. We're a member-based organization. Um, if you become a member, you can. we'll send you one of our books. We have a periodical we put out three times a year. Um, we keep you abreast by uh, email newsletters. And um, we, we very much appreciate any more support. It's going to take as I said, about $10 million, and uh, everybody's $20 chipping in, whatever someone may have, will help us get there. Wonderful. Uh, Randy Hankin, Director of Communications and Marketing for MAPS, the website, once again, maps.org. Randy, thank you so much. I really uh, enjoyed speaking with you. Nicole, thanks for having me on, and enjoy yourself down there in Florida. All right, take care. Bye-bye. That was 2010, 13 years ago, and look how far that research has progressed since. Okay, now time for a look back at one of the biggest albums of the 90s. It was September 18th, 1995, this week, 28 years ago, that I got to sit down with Alanis Morissette. I was an early champion of the album Jagged Little Pill. So when it exploded, her people remembered and brought her up to my radio station for a thank you interview. This album went on to top the charts in 13 countries and sold over 33 million copies worldwide. It won the Grammy for Album of the Year making the then 21-year-old Morissette the youngest artist to win the honor up to that point. The record has gone on to become a Broadway show that was nominated for 15 Tony Awards. A world tour celebrating the 25th anniversary of Jagged Little Pill in 2020 
was cut short due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Today, we go back to the beginning. Again, September 18th, 1995. To anyone who uh, didn't spend the early 80s in Canada or didn't watch Nickelodeon as a kid, Alanis Morissette came out of nowhere, released an amazing album called Jagged Little Pill, and made a lot of people learn her name very quickly. And I thank you so much for coming in today. No problem. Thanks for having me. Well, the listeners know I'm a, I'm a big fan, and so are many of them, and we're really excited for this. <laughs> um, briefly, for those who don't know the story, can we get mm-hmm. like the quick Not Reader's show. Digest version of pre-LA <laughs> Alanis? Uh, okay. Um, I uh, started writing songs when I was nine. I had been subtly immersed in the industry from the time that I was six, just playing piano and dancing and doing theater and, and writing and um, released a record independently across Canada when I was 10. Wow. Um, just it was something that it was compelling for me and I loved it and I was addic- addicted to it from that time onwards. And then um, after that, I uh, did, did some more theater and some more writing and released a couple of records in Canada. All at the age of? Between 14 and 18, I guess. Wow. Yeah, and um, signed a publishing deal when I was 14 with um, with MCA Publishing and have been with them ever since. And and then I moved here. I moved away initially to Toronto for a couple of years just to get away from the creative environment that I had been in and uh, just to learn whatever it is you learn when you're alone. Uh-huh. And and then I moved here. So, so. You, you came to L.A. at 18? I was actually 20 when I came here. Oh. I was 18 when I moved to Toronto. Okay, so then you decided to start writing in a different... Mm-hmm. <clears throat> just um different style yeah just a, in a a pure sort of more you know more for the sake of communication whereas when i was younger and and i, I think it's sort of indicative of what the 80s were all about was um just writing for the sake of entertainment back then you know just uh not necessarily being as unadulterated and as forthright but more more for the sake of the music and the the external part of it whereas now um, sort of evolved to a place where, where music to me is, is a very sort of spiritual thing for me. We're um, going to get into that. Okay. <laughs> I can tell, and okay. it's evident from your lyrics. Were you working at, at the time <clears throat> while you were like meeting people and collaborating and writing? And Was I working? As did in, you work in LA? I mean, did you work oh, a waitress um, or did you? No, I didn't. Yeah. I, um, Oh, you had all that money from being successful as an artist. <laughs> I don't know. All that money is pushing it. <laughs> I just I had enough money to sort of sustain a little bit of a a, a low level of sort of standard of living, and, and actually my manager Scott <laughs> lent me some money for a while too. So, um, you know, enough to enough to keep going. And I I never really questioned whether I'd be able to sustain any sort of lifestyle financially with it. It was it was always just there. And my you know I'm pretty bohemian, so I never had any sort of extravagant way of living. Anyway. Where do you live? I live in Santa Monica. Oh, mm-hmm. me too. We're neighbors. Oh. <laughs> um, so how, now you got hooked up somehow with Glenn Ballard, a songwriter, producer yeah. who's had a lot of success. Right. In um, other... In other sort of... Right. Stylistically, actually, he and I, our past were reminiscent of each other's, really. And I think when we were set up through MCA Publishing, um, you know, I know the person that set us up initially just set us up because they thought we'd be compatible as people. And uh, he said, you know, even if you don't write any songs or get any music out of it, I know you, you two will get along really well. And at that point, I, kn- I had become somewhat disheartened with the whole collaborative process. So they, you know, it's almost like they were throwing the dog a, a musical bone. You know, they were like, okay, you're going to really like this person. And uh, Glenn and I got together and um, we just started with a clean slate stylistically and personally and creatively. And there's so much synergy between he and I that, you know, it sort of shows in the way that we create music, too. Yeah, and you describe it as kind of magical that it happened. Definitely. Very quickly, very accelerated, and very overwhelming. Like he and I are, um, I consider us to be pretty analytical people, and uh, we haven't been able to figure this one out. Well, I want to play this morning some of the songs that people might not have heard, those who few who don't have the album yet. <laughs> um, uh, one in particular, you and Glenn wrote all these songs, you recorded a bunch of them, and you right. started shopping it around for a deal. Right. And yeah. and you got a lot of rejection. Well, not really. <laughs> we were actually talking to a lot of different companies, and 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 rejection in it in a different sense, in the sense that I wasn't really connecting with them mm-hmm. on any sort of cerebral or creative level, and I didn't really expect to, but it would have been nice. And then, uh, you know, until I met Maverick, until I talked to Guy Osiri at Maverick, and he he really understood where I was coming from, and there. But before you got to yeah. that point, mm-hmm. and while you were dealing with all these record industry types, <laughs> you wrote another song. <laughs> yes, I did. It's called Right Through You. It is called Right Through You, and, and it's, uh, there's about six or seven people in there. 
and some some of them were people that I worked with when I was younger, you know, and and felt um, felt in retrospect, you know, really sort of taken advantage of, and um, and then other people that I met just through the process of shopping this deal, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a composite of a few people. Yes, it is. <laughs> and in an industry town, a lot of tongues are wagging as to who is she writing about. But the song is called "Right Through You." It's mm-hmm. dedicated to folks, I guess, in the A and R community. Well, of some, <laughs> there's a, there's there are specific people in it, and okay. and uh, I don't need to drag mm-hmm. them through the mud. <laughs> no, we won't ask who. People can imagine who they right. want. This is "Right Through You" from Jagged Little Pill. Alanis Morissette with us on KSCA. Alanis Morissette with us on KSCA. That's right through you from Jagged Little Pill. Um, that's kind of an angry song. Mm-hmm. And most people were probably introduced to you by way of You Ought to Know. Right. Which, um, it overflows with emotion. And a lot of it is anger. Yes. Justified anger. Um, mm-hmm. But that's kind of taking one emotion out of context. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think any, so- any one song... Um, alone is misrepresentative i think of of the whole record and therefore of me i, I don't think i don't think any person in this world has one facet to them you know and it just so happened that we released a, an overtly angry subconscious part of me first <laughs> and um you know people meet me and they they you know they don't get any sort of angry vibe from me when they meet me or any dark energy or anything but that doesn't mean that I haven't been angry. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I, not to sound cute or anything, but mm-hmm. does it make you mad when people describe you as angry from hearing one song? Um, it doesn't make me mad. I mean, I, I understand why they're saying it. You know, if, if they are listening to you, I don't know. That yeah. I can understand why they're saying that, but it's just one piece of the pie, you know. If you had so. to describe your songwriting, your lyrics in one mm-hmm. word, what would it be? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, my lyrics are. I just. I just think subconscious, you know, because a lot of times we were writing it and, you know, songs like Hand in My Pocket were written in less than an hour and recorded in less than an hour and just, you know, the entire afternoon spent 
sort of stream of consciousness with the music and with the lyrics and all at once and the takes you know vocal takes one or two takes and the guitar tracks are the same and I don't know it's just a really um it's just a really sort of beautiful experience for me one that I know I'll never forget and now that I've tapped into it I'll I'll never be able to write in any other way now how about honest honest for sure you've um yeah. you express a lot of stuff now is that difficult mm -hmm. is it weird when you can you think about who's going to be listening? Can you think of, like, your parents listening to some of these songs? Yeah. They, my parents actually were, um, they, obviously, they know me very well, and, and they were actually really happy to, to listen to this record, and and for what may have been the first time, my being really honest was, was exciting for them. You know, they, they know they know what I'm all about, all about, and they also know that the music that I was writing in the past was not necessarily 100% honest, you know, and there was nothing wrong with that, but they're happy you know a lot of people question whether my parents are, are disappointed in my being this sort of <laughs> straight ahead but they're happy about it so mm. um is would would that be the biggest difference between the music you wrote as a child and now the honesty the straightforwardness the yeah that and musically is a little different too stylistically i mean i still use loops now and but it was just um i, I guess it was more pop oriented when i was younger do you feel wise <laughs> sure because my first <clears throat> reaction on listening to the whole album, and I listened to it a lot, it lived mm -hmm. in my car for a very long time, um, was how is this woman wrote these songs when she was 20 years old? I'm 35. I am not that wise yet. Well, I don't know about that. The fact that, you're, that you can listen to it and appreciate it and understand it means that you have wisdom. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. You I express it beautifully. You, you yes. have a way to... Um, one song in particular that I'm going to play in a minute here, You Learn. Mm -hmm. um, Wow, you say a lot in uh, just, you know, a few words there. And Do you think people at different stages in their life might listen to it differently? I think so. I mean, I even listen to it differently. You know, it applies to different situations, um, different, different times in my life, you know. So, yeah, it, it, is all, it all depends on what your perspective is. So, As yes. you grow, you have more experience to draw on, right. and, and it means different things to you at different times. Exactly. Alanis Morissette is with us at KSCA. This is You Learn from Jagged Little Pill.
Alanis Morissette on Southern California's album, Alternative, FM 101.9. That was You Learn from Jagged Little Pill. We talked right before we played the song about um, women maybe at different ages, people at different ages listening with a different ear. Mm -hmm. uh, how about the difference between men and women listening to your music? Um, I've, from, from the response that I've gotten from people that come, come to the shows and, and listen to the record, it's just that a lot of men change around the he's and the she's and apply to themselves. You know, I, I don't know, I, I consider myself to be pretty androgynous, so a lot of, a lot of you know, my perspective is, is, um, is, I guess, from a human standpoint as opposed to a female standpoint. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I obviously because I am female, there's going to be a certain things that that men may not be able to relate to in it. Right. Um, but uh, it's also sort of a humanist outlook, and and for that reason, I think men have been able to understand some of it as well. I mean, men are, are just as emotional and have as many vulnerabilities as females do. You know, it's a matter of whether they they want to admit it or not. So great. You know what? You're giving them a lot more credit than I do because one thing I noticed last night at mm -hmm. at the show at your concert. Um, and just in general discussions with men is, mm -hmm. boy, they tend to um, overly accentuate the sexual references in your songs. That that is true. I mean, that is true. There are a lot of there are a lot of men that that just sort of hear it and, and they they are afraid of me or they they just think that I'm a, a male basher and and that or they're just so obsessed with the sexual pictures that you paint. Right. And that's what they like seem to focus <laughs> in on. Um, <laughs> And uh, rather than looking at the big picture and realizing that sex is one element of a right. whole relationship and life, right? I guess I guess it depends on what what kind of men we're we're talking about here. You're right. <laughs> you know, the, a lot of the men that I've met are, are are very intelligent and very, you know, they appreciate they appreciate more than just one piece of the pie. And the sexual part of it, it might jump out more so than than other parts of it if you're a you know if you're a very sexual person, you know. But then if you're a very angry person, people will will sort of think about that mostly you know latch on to the anger part right or if you're a really vulnerable person you'll latch on to the sad part of it i guess i don't i don't know so <laughs> how, you know back to the honesty thing um was this like therapeutic for you was it a th cathartic experience to get because it had to you you got mm. so much out yeah i mean in so many ways when i was writing this record i just i just kept thinking how self-indulgent it was you know and i thought this is, I'm being so selfish writing this record, you know, it's all about me and even the discussions that Glenn and I would have, you know, we'd be philosophizing and intellectualizing before we'd write the songs and I thought, God, I'm just monopolizing every conversation here and, and not necessarily just talking about me, but talking about my revelations and my thoughts and, and it wound up leading to the point where I could write this record with him, but I just felt that I was being really almost overly introspective and... Um, the gratifying part about all of this, though, after having said that, is, is just that my doing that has compelled other people to do it with their own lives. So it sort of became not about me anymore. It became about people finding something in themselves that related to what I was going through. And, and that part is good because I didn't want it to be just all about me, you know. But that's what you know best. So that's, that's all I know. <laughs> the easiest For thing to write about. Right, right exactly. Um, do you see yourself maybe as a role model? I mean, for young kids, uh, to real, you know, to dig deep into themselves and and look mm -hmm. truthfully at their feelings. I guess um, I, I guess I am. I don't know. I I just know that I know the. I don't know. I know how how much it pays off to be to be vulnerable and to be honest and how empowering it can be and how scary it can be, but how exhilarating it is when you transcend that that fear of being vulnerable. You know, a lot of people ask me whether, you know, whether I'm afraid of how naked I am on this record and I'm just like ironically enough the more naked I am the more powerful I've become you know and the mm. more peaceful I've become I've never been this peaceful in my, in my life and it has nothing to do with you know how, how well the record's being received and, and sort of external adulation of all of this it's just because I'm I'm finally there's no duplicity with who I am as an artist and who I am as a writer and a person it's just everything they all flow together and, and, and it's very very peaceful place to be you're being honest so right. yeah i guess that's very therapeutic in yeah. and of itself you don't have to hold up any you know any fake walls around right. you nothing to live up to you just you just are <laughs> so as naked as <clears throat> as you might have felt recording it how does it feel on stage every night <laughs> just as naked believe me <laughs> oh god it's got to be harder when you have all those faces staring back at you and you're telling your deepest darkest secrets yeah it is it's it's um I'm emotionally and physically spent after most shows, so it's worth it, though. 
Okay, um, there's another real private moment on this album. Um, it's at the very end. You kind of have to listen all the way through, uh, what's, wake up like a minute later, and mm -hmm. there's a hidden acapella, really emotional, very personal moment. Mm -hmm. um, do you mind if I play that? No, not at all. Okay, is there a name to this? It's called Your House. Your House. Uh, I think a lot of people can identify with it. Women, definitely. Mm -hmm. I think men would probably be scared by it. <laughs> I know. That's another reason why people are scared of me. <laughs> uh, th this song, again, was just sort of a... I was staying in somebody's house in Hollywood that, that I actually had been welcomed into, and I've never broken into anybody's house. Um, but I just wanted to recreate the same emotion that I felt when I was in that house. And, and there's this sort of deviant self, um, subconscious part of me that just really wanted to go through everything. It's like, it's like that feeling you feel when you're in someone's house and no one's around and there's a, a diary with a, you know, a page open. Wow. Everybody wants to read it, you know, and yeah. it's like, that's, that's the way that I felt when I was in his house. And, and at the end of the song, I just sort of, I get myself back for, for being intrusive. Well, I feel voyeuristic listening to it, <laughs> but it is compelling. It shows your magnificent voice yeah, and thanks. just an incredible, incredibly personal moment. So, mm -hmm. well, listen, your house, Alanis Morissette on KSCA. I went to your house, I walked up the stairs, I opened your door with a ringing the bell, I walked down the hall. Into your room Where I could smell you And I shouldn't be here Without permission I shouldn't be here Would you forgive me, love? If I dance in your shower Would you forgive me, love? If I laid in your bed would you forgive me, love, if I stay all afternoon? I took off my clothes, put on your robe, and through your drawers, and I found your cologne. Went down to the den, found your CD. And I played your Johnny And I shouldn't stay long You might be home soon I shouldn't stay long Would you forgive me, love? If I dance in your shower Would you forgive me, love? If I laid in your bed Would you forgive me, love? If I stay all afternoon I burn your incense I ran a bath I noticed a letter that said on your desk It said, hello, love I love you so, love Meet me at me If I cry in your shower So forgive me, love For the salt in your bed So forgive me, love If I cry all afternoon Alanis Morissette with the hidden track at the end of her album Jagged Little Pill. She calls it Your House. Okay, obviously we don't have time to discuss... <laughs> Every song on the album, they're kind of rushing us now. So um, I'll, I'll skip over a bunch of them. Ironic has become one of my favorite songs on the <laughs> album. Um, and we all have one time or another experience ironies. Hmm. Now, let me ask you this question. You, <laughs> you talk about some ironies in pretty cosmic proportions. Mm -hmm. But you also include the line that um, uh, life is a funny way of helping you out. Right. Did I miss something? Because in your song, I didn't hear those. I heard, you know, it was a funny... Um, 
really good song that makes you think about life and, and the weird twists and turns. Mm -hmm. But where did it help you out there? In, in the song, you, you may not find any lyric that, that directly points to the helping out part, but <clears throat> in my life, there's been many, many times where things haven't necessarily been going that well. And, uh, and, and it just changed in and, and sort of ironic ways, you know, especially just moving away and, and go, going into situations where I thought it would be horrible, you know, and then, and then sort of finding out that it was actually a really beautiful experience or the person I really connected with that person going into it thinking that I wouldn't, you know. So that happens quite a bit and it's actually happening right now all the time. Yeah, I guess so. sometimes when you least expect it, good things do happen and good things happen out of bad things. So. Exactly, and vice versa. So Ironic. Al Alanis Morissette on KSCA. An old man turned 98 He won the lottery and died the next day It's a black fly in your Chardonnay It's a death row pardon Two minutes too late And isn't it ironic? Alanis, thank you so much for coming in this morning. It's been really a treat. Thanks and, for having me. And it's nice to know that you're as cool as you are in your lyrics. And uh, I wish thanks. you the best of success. You live in L.A. You're leaving for Europe after... Japan, like uh, Tuesday Wow. in the morning. So. And you're gone for a couple of months? Yeah, we're going across Europe and then uh, coming back. And then we're going to go out again. Okay, when yeah. you come back, come back and visit us. All right. All right, thank you so much. Thank Alanis you. Morissette on KSCA. 
uh, and there you have it. Um, unfortunately, at the end, she was rushed out of here. She was very busy and kind enough to, to fit us into her schedule. Um, I could have gone on for three oh, hours oh, with her. May I? Yeah. I'm moved. Uh, not only uh, by uh, uh, her. I thought she was just, she really comes across so beautifully. And mm. hearing her songs in the context of her talking about her music um, was also really powerful. But also to say, great job, Nicole. Well, Way to thank go. You. you know what? This is one of those that I was so looking forward to. And it was yeah. such a pleasure doing because... Uh, her songs are brilliant, and each one of them is meaning. Like I said, I could have gone on and gone through each and every song on the album and talked to her in depth about them because there is a lot of depth there, and I love doing it because um, her work needs to be explored because well, the, there's the, a lot to it. And the two of you make a compelling uh, pair there, too. That was well, great. Thanks. I really enjoyed it. You know what? There's so many great songs. We'll take a break. I'll come back and finish off the hour with one more song from uh, Jagged Little Pill, Alanis Morissette on KSCA. Don't go away. From this week, back in 1995, Alanis Morissette. And that brings us to the end of our first week of moving shows. You know, I'm moving across the country. In addition to these best of shows, I'll check in from the road on YouTube when I can. So be sure to subscribe to my channel, at Nicole Sandler. And don't forget the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, we'll hear the truth about Medicare Advantage not Medicare and there's no advantage, uh, from Wendell Potter. We'll check in with Ali Belshi and Lawrence O'Donnell from MSNBC and get a scary warning from one of the loudest and earliest voices warning about the dangers of nukes, Dr. Helen Caldicott, and a whole lot more. Until then, have a great weekend. I'll talk to you later.